Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to City Church. Today we're continuing in our series on practical theology. Now, prior to this, the series we had before, in case you guys need a little back, about two weeks ago, we ended up uh, what I now am calling our impractical theology sermon series, which was our sermon series on heresy, right? And so we walked through different heresies and the reasons in which they are heretical. Duh, they take away or diminish from who Jesus is. That's basically it. If your theology diminishes from who Jesus is, it's not a good theology, right? Now, I'm just saying that for this. The last heresy that we spoke of was something called docetism, right? And docetism was the heresy that Jesus uh, never existed in the flesh, and we talked about how that broke the gospel. And it does, because it's kind of important that he lived and died. He chose that way to be the way in which he sanctifies the world. And so, we're going to continue a little bit in that theme today. But first, I want to talk about something that is not near and dear to my heart, but is near and dear to some of yours, especially now that Jeremy's gone, I'm sad, because this was mainly for him. But what about those Browns, am I right? Anyone? Who here watches football? Anybody? Thank you. Well, I understand that. You're not from here. You don't have to. <laughs> there is no requirement for you to enjoy the Browns. Uh, you were from California. You have better teams to choose from. All right. Anywho. Uh, so Jeremy loves the Browns. This was mainly set up for him. But I want to just talk about this real quick, all right? I know this has nothing to do with theology, and half of us don't like football. I'm one of those people. It's sort of a sports thing. I, uh, whenever Christy and I got married, at that point, I decided to like the Steelers just so we had a rivalry. Uh, I didn't actually care about them beforehand. It was easier to be a Steelers fan because they won. Let's toss that out there. Anywho, so Browns fans are weird because they love their team, right? They talk about them, they think about them, they discuss them. They look forward heavily to six and eight seasons, like, like six, one, and eight, it's fine. Six, eight, and one, six, eight, and one, right? It'll be a perfect season if it's that way. They look forward to uh, their team winning a game and they celebrate whenever they have good plays in non-winning games. Like, they just enjoy this. It's what they grew up in. It's what they were immersed in as they were living. And it's just part of almost their identity. It's what they, they just talk about, right? They do. Uh, you want to know what this is like? Christy, my wife, uh, said she likes the Browns. She really likes the Browns. As a matter of fact, she lived in Portland for a couple of years whenever she was finishing up her, uh, I think this was her last round of residency in Portland. And when she was there... You know, she's in a different state, wherein most people don't like the Browns because they have no need to. They're not required to by location. Uh, but fun story, there were actually groups of Browns fans there called the Browns Backers Clubs. And they would get together on the nights of games. And they would go to a particular bar that had bought the right uh, packages to watch the Browns games out of market and they would all go and sit and cheer on their team. And you might be thinking, yeah, that's weird. All right, sure, little fans. This was in 2006 and 2007. This was not during their heyday, okay? They so enjoyed that they couldn't help but trying to be around people who love the same thing as them and who couldn't help but talk to people about it, right? There was no looking kind of sad and whenever someone brings up something else, be like, yeah, I like the Browns. They're like, no, I'm a Browns fan. What do you want to say about it? Anything? anything. I say all that, all of that to say this. The things that we take pride in, the things that we love, the things that we uh, build into our identities, we tend to talk about them, right? We talk about what we love. If it's something that's important to us, it will come out or flow out of our mouths. It happens. And so because of that, here's the, the actual portion of practical theology we're talking about today. We're talking about practical evangelism and bearing witness. Now, who here hears evangelism and thinks that's a dirty word? Anybody? I kind of do at times. Who here hears evangelism and thinks of proselytism, which is the forcing people to hear what you say and shoving it down their throats, right? When we speak about practical evangelism, we are not speaking about that. But we are speaking about the ability or willingness to tell people about what Christ has done for you. Why, why, oh, why would anyone ever do this? 
why would you ever talk to other people about Jesus? Uh, it's really simple, actually. Uh, Matthew 28, 16 through 20 says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So whenever we ask why, the answer is very simple. Jesus told us to. Thank you very much. That's the end of your sermon today. I appreciate it. The Bible says it. Have a good day. All right, I think someone's supposed to come up and lead worship now. Uh, ready to go? You guys want some more? All right, a little bit more. A little bit more. All right, no, seriously. Seriously. Why? No, seriously, why? No, seriously, why? <laughs> why should we proclaim Christ to people? And that first thing that I talked about is the first part of it. We as people will talk about the things that we love, that we value, that we find worthwhile, and that we find, oh, uh, goodness, what's I'm looking for here? That we take some sort of uh, pride in, right? Pride in the way that we use it today, not pride in the sin way. Seriously, have you ever heard someone talk about Apple or Android if they're really on that side? Like, and you pull out the wrong phone, and all of a sudden, that person is yelling at you because you are an inferior person? The only person I've ever done that to before was Ken, because he has a Windows phone. I don't understand it. Ken, I don't understand it. All right, yeah, whatever. We will go to town on this later. All right? Anywho. It's okay. I am. We talk about what we love. Huh? Who's? I, did I say I am? Touche. Well, we talked about heresy. It's fine. Anywho, back in. We talk about what we love. When the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Who here knows the answer to that? What does Jesus respond back with? Huh? The first one, because they're in order. No? All right. He answers back with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind. I'm sorry, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Whenever we talk about why we as a church exist, why City Church exists, we basically say for a couple of reasons. We say we exist because we are supposed to love God, love people, and we're supposed to show people God. And these two passages that we just read from Matthew are where those pull from. We are called to love God and love people. And we are called to demonstrate God to people. And all of them are born out of love for the purpose of giving glory to God. Not for the purpose of being right or things of that nature. Right? We want to see people come to know Jesus. And the outflowing of this, this is the part that's really important, guys. Like, you can try to just be right when you go and talk to people. You can try really hard to just sound like you know what you're talking about, but true life-changing witness to who Jesus is, life-changing discussion of who Jesus is, doesn't come simply from you having all of the right facts put together. It flows from a heart of worship that sees who Jesus is and realizes that he is the best thing that's ever happened to you and your family and your friends who know him, and that you want other people to have access to this best thing ever. Uh, he offers what no one else can offer. Why wouldn't you welcome other people into what he offers? And you might still be asking why. So there's a bunch of questions about this that pull in. A lot of people ask a ton of questions. Why is it necessary to tell people about Jesus? Uh, and my answer is, why wouldn't we? If he is all-knowing, all-loving, all-good, if he is the one who proclaims 
uh, who claims, who demonstrates his perfection through his life, death, and resurrection, if he is the one who can overpower or conquer sin and death, why wouldn't we tell people about him? Why not? There's only so much I can offer another person. I can sit down, I can listen to them, I can counsel them, I can help them work through their fears, their angers, their, their, their shame, their trepidation. I can help them work through uh, communication issues and things of that nature. But when all said and done, all I can give them is basic things about this world that might make their life a little bit easier. I can't actually help rescue them from themselves. I can't overcome their sin. I can't overcome their pain. I can't under overcome brokenness, and I can't overcome death. But I know someone who can and that's Jesus, right? It is worthwhile to tell people about Jesus. There are even other whys that sometimes pop out with this. I, I sometimes have people ask questions like, Chris, do you think that people who never had a chance to hear about Jesus would go to hell? And my response to that question is, I'm not God, I don't know, but I would certainly hope not in general, right? Uh, though I cannot say yes or no to that because it is not directly addressed other than there is no salvation except in Christ, right? So I don't know. And they say then, well, if it's, if it's possible that people who don't know about Jesus, who have never heard of him, if it's possible that they uh, can have salvation without having to believe in Jesus, why would you condemn them by telling them about him if they aren't going to believe in him, right? That's horrible, and my main thing would be, A, we're called to go and tell people. I've actually, and you guys are all like, that's a weird and convoluted argument. I've had someone actually tell me that before. I can't tell people about Jesus because in doing so, I am then condemning them because they're making a choice not to follow him, right? Weird. My basic concept would be, if it's true that God is just and glorious and good, and if it is true that he has grace on people, he will give the grace for those who would have been his without hearing about him, the choice to actually believe in him whenever they hear about him. Like, he would give them enough grace to understand and know. It wouldn't be a question. You don't have to worry about, oh, am I going to condemn someone by telling them about Jesus? No, if they are a person who is beyond condemnation, it's because they will believe in Jesus if they have the chance to hear about him. That's the best I got for that one, right? We are called to go and tell. We're supposed to go and bear witness. We're supposed to because of who Jesus is and what he's done. But how? How are you supposed to tell people about Jesus, right? What does it mean? What does it look like? What does it look like to tell people about Jesus? What does the Bible show us it looks like whenever people tell people about Jesus? And there, we're going to use the book of Acts because it's an easy one because we can actually just glean examples from it, which is my favorite way of using Acts. I tend not to try and teach heavy theology out of the book of Acts because it's stories of things that happened without promises that they will happen again generally, Right? Uh, so, whenever Pentecost occurred, it's an amazing story of what occurred. We cannot guarantee there will ever be tongues of fire falling around again. I don't think there will be. I think it was to tell something that happened, not something that happens all the time, right? But we can glean from it stories about what it looked like whenever the early church was forming and what people did. So, we're going to look at some different ways that the gospel was proclaimed to people through the book of Acts. The easiest one is this. Uh, sometimes it's telling big old groups of people the gospel, explaining who Jesus is to big old groups that you don't know. Best example of this one is in Acts 2 during Pentecost. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my words. And then Peter gives this wonderful, giant uh, speech that walks through who Jesus is and what he's done. And my favorite part is that his entire thing is usually this Christ whom God raised from the dead, uh, who you killed. Like that's that's Peter's point in pretty much every sermon he has in the book of Acts. I'm not joking. Read all the sermons in the book of Acts, and it's God raised him, we killed him. <laughs> like, it's interesting because whenever they preach the gospel, they preach in a different way than evangelical churches usually preach today. They push and demonstrate the resurrection as opposed to the crucifixion. Peter preaches the resurrection as the salvation aspect more than he preaches the crucifixion as it. All right? But anywho, Peter tells a big old group of people about Jesus. 
And now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation." So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So Peter stands in front of a giant crowd, a big old group of people, and proclaims who Jesus is, and a lot of those people came to believe and accept who Jesus is and what he's done. They accept what he did on their behalf. So sometimes it is that. I don't have a problem with Billy Graham-type crusades because sometimes that happens, Right? Sometimes people stand up in big groups and proclaim the gospel, and a bunch of people hear about it, and that's awesome. But sometimes, sometimes it's telling smaller groups of people. So after Paul uh, was uh, converted, became a follower of Christ, he went through, and this is how he actually generally uh, did things. For some days, he, Paul, was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Paul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So Paul didn't stand in front of thousands and thousands of people whenever he did this. Paul sat in front of smaller groups. Uh, roughly analogous to about the size of people that are in churches within the U.S. The average church size in the U.S. is about 100 people. It was probably groups of 50 to 150 that were the ones meeting in synagogues, okay? So he would go and proclaim to smaller groups, and some would listen and accept, and some would reject him and say no and kick him out, right? Sometimes it's telling strangers who are earnestly seeking and want to know more about God, in the book of Acts, this is most easily exemplified in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, and this is uh, starting in Acts chapter 8. It says, And he, Philip, rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip up to come and sit with him. You see, in this case, there was a person who was earnestly seeking God, an individual, a stranger that Philip didn't know, who wanted to know who God was, and he was desperately seeking and trying to learn. So he was doing things like reading his Bible when he didn't have any background to understand it. And through God's uh, prompting, Philip walked over to this guy, hears him reading Isaiah, and asked, do you know what it says? And that guy is saying, I got no idea what it says. I have no idea what this is teaching me. And Philip sits down and starts to teach him, through Isaiah, who Jesus is. And that Ethiopian Jew then got out of Ethiopian eunuch, not Jewish person, the Ethiopian eunuch then got out of his chariot, was baptized in a pond by the side of it, and then went proclaiming and worshiping as he went back to his station in Ethiopia. Right? Sometimes it's telling individual strangers, but most of all, most often, it's telling friends and family. Most of the people who became followers of Christ throughout the years did not become followers because of giant crusade-type proclamations. Most did not become some through smaller speaking in places like church settings. Most did not become followers through random strangers walking up and telling them about Jesus. Most people throughout history became followers of Christ because someone they loved loved them enough to talk to them about him. Most of the time, it's friends and family. Here's an example from this from the book of Acts. And on the Sabbath day, we, Luke, Paul, and companions, went outside the gate to the riverside where we, were supposed, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. There was a group of women who would come and sit together in this place and learn. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of uh, Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful, come to my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. So this woman, Lydia, became a follower of Christ through the preaching of Paul. 
she heard him preaching to a group of people, right? And she learned about the gospel through what he was teaching to that group of people by a well. And it doesn't just say that she got baptized. She then went and had her whole household baptized. And Lydia is spoken of as the leader of this household. She seems pretty much everywhere we read to be the one who's in charge of it. And so she was able to tell those who she knows because households weren't just your immediate family. It was your extended family and uh, sometimes freed men and women who worked for you and sometimes slaves who worked for you. That whole group became followers of Jesus because she was. Sometimes it's telling your friends and family. And that's what I would argue in our culture is mostly what it is now. Because people who have had the opportunity to hear someone like a Billy Graham speak is pretty much everybody, right? Most people are not going to randomly walk into a random place where someone's going to stand up front and proclaim the gospel to them. So the smaller groups are kind of out in that sense. Strangers occur. That's actually why Jake does the work he does at the Oracle. As he's there, as he's loving people, uh, as he's being a person, sometimes there'll be people there who have questions about God and will hear, hey, that guy, he's someone you can talk to. And they'll go and ask him. And he'll answer appropriately. And they'll realize he doesn't hate them. And then they'll become friends. A lot of Jake's ministry is ministry that starts with strangers and then they become friends. But then other ones start with friends and those friends become closer friends and those friends become followers of Jesus, right? The people that we love and care for that we are most likely to spend time with and they're most likely to see who we are and what we love and value and who are most likely then able to hear well whenever we try and communicate what we love and value. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what? Again. You may be saying to yourself, I hear that, but you know what? My whole family's Christian. My whole family knows who Jesus is, and today I say, praise Jesus. I love whenever I hear that people know Jesus. Praise Jesus, right? And I have no friends who don't know Jesus. Well, why? Why are all of your friends people who know Jesus? It's a really sad thing that happens in churches, actually, and it tends to happen in churches of any size over a period of time. And that, what happens is that uh, a person becomes a follower of Jesus, uh, from something, either from a friend or family member telling them about it, or from someone who uh, heard it from someone proclaiming it somewhere for the first time, or a stranger telling them, like someone becomes a follower of Jesus, and they have, uh, everyone that surrounds them has no idea who Jesus is, and they may be brimming with happiness and joy and things of that nature, what's happened? Do you guys, anyone here remember whenever you became a follower of Jesus for the first time? Were anyone here old enough to know it? Yeah. What was it like for that first, like, six months after you became a follower of Jesus? Uh, how excited were you to be able to tell other people about him? Pretty excited, generally, right? How skilled were you at telling people about him without sounding like a jerk? Mine was probably right about here, right? So I was excited, but I was a jerk, right? Which is sad because it means that during that time whenever I was most excited to tell people about Jesus, I was also the least effective at doing it probably in my life. I was probably better at pushing people towards Jesus before I knew him than I was at that point in my life. Because they just like, I need something to get me away from this kid. Oh, the church, he'll never go there, right? Whatever, all right? So we get excited, and we want to tell people about him. But we don't know how. become friends, they become a follower of Jesus, they have no followers of Jesus that surround them or part of their support network or social group. And then over time, one of two things tends to happen. Either they, through telling people about Jesus, their social network ends up taking one of two stances. People will either then say, oh, I'm willing to hang out with you because you are a loud, obnoxious Christian. And they, if they weren't Christians, they become them eventually. Or, oh, you're a loud, obnoxious Christian. I'm not going to hang out with you anymore. And they stop talking to you, right? Anyone ever have that happen? Yeah? Oh, you're a Christian. I don't want to talk to you anymore. That was all of my friends in high school, for the most part at first. Because I'm not joking whenever I said I was vocally against Christianity before I became a Christian. And so all of my friends were people who were vocally against Christianity. And then I became a Christian, and they were vocally against Christianity and me. <laughs> so, 
So I lost a lot of my friends at that point. <sighs> but I started to gain other friends who knew Jesus, right? And so you go from having all these opportunities to tell people about Jesus because none of them know about him to eventually over time, slowly and slowly, all of your good friends and all the people you're close to end up being followers of Jesus, right? Which is good for your own personal growth. It helps you grow closer to him if the people who are around you are pushing you towards him. But it's super bad for your ability to tell people about him because everyone knows him. This is called the Christian bubble. It exists and it happens. Church bubbles happen. They happen all the time. They happen in the most outreaching churches eventually, but they occur, and everyone you hang out with will end up being someone that knows Jesus. Now, the question becomes, why is that? The people who don't know Jesus also bear Christ's image. They also obviously have good qualities. Like, they are generally worth knowing as well. You don't just have to hide from people who don't know Jesus because you think, oh, no, they're scary. No. They're genuinely good people who just don't know who Jesus is. Many times. Sometimes there are genuinely bad people. But sometimes there are genuinely bad people who know Jesus too. So we'll get back into that at some point. Anywho, it is worth having friends that are outside of your Christian bubble. Why wouldn't you? You might be saying, oh, well, I'm an introvert which is true and understandable. There are many people who are. Uh, some of the biggest fights that happened in me and Christy's marriage before we actually became closer to Jesus, uh, me, I should say closer to Jesus, she was already pretty close, before I became closer to Jesus was that we had arguments because I didn't realize she was an introvert. And I'm an extreme extrovert. And I'd be like, why is it bothering you? Why are you thinking so hard about calling someone on the phone? Just call them, it's easy. Stop it. I made so much conflict in our marriage by not recognizing that she was an introvert, Right? But here's the deal. Extroverts tend to make a lot, a lot, a lot of relatively shallow friendships. You have a lot of friends, very few of whom are actually close to you. Introverts tend to have very few friendships, but they tend to be far deeper and more personal and more intimate. Which sounds strange and counterintuitive, but that means that introverts are sometimes better about telling their friends and family about Jesus because those introverts have better relationships with those people and love them more obviously and deeply. You introverts have a giant role to play in evangelism because you have the ability to connect with people closely. And you won't connect Billy Graham style to 30,000 people in a stadium, but you'll have far more impact in those people's lives than Billy Graham probably did. Because Billy Graham brought them to the point of salvation, which Christ did, but he brought them to that point. But then he kind of did nothing else afterwards. <laughs> you have a time and a place to be able to speak into their lives as they are growing in Christ, and you can help them become more and more close like Jesus. You can help them escape the, I'm now a jerk who tells people about Jesus phase, because you can, they'll trust you and hear you whenever you say, that's a jerky way to say it. Whereas me, I talk to so many people in so many different places, because I'm an extrovert, but like two of them know who I am. <laughs> like two of them actually have deep and close relationships with me. And if you guys can't tell, I'm sometimes bad at the interpersonal relationship part of pastoring. If you didn't know that, welcome here. It's probably your first day. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's totally true. Totally true, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? That's not what I'm good at. And I will have less influence in people's lives long term than you will. Make sense? Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean that extroverts have no place in evangelism. We certainly do. We're willing to go and talk to strangers. And that's a pretty important thing. We're willing to have a conversation with someone we don't know. And we can therefore go from someone who is not a friend to a friend more easily. Right? Who are you? What do you care about? What's going on in your life? Oh, you like that thing, do you? Very nice. I have no idea what that means, but tell me more, right? Like, and in doing so, you build relationships with people. Fun story. This, the way I really noticed this about myself was whenever I helped plant a church in Alliance, because I went from planting a church in Canton, 
And then I went to planning a church in Alliance. And in Canton, we have conversations about Marvel comics and superheroes and the favorite metal bands people have and what your best places and venues are to go and why Canton is no good because other cities are better to Alliance, where I spoke to many a people about guns and tractors. And Christy laughed at me because I would go and sit in this church and end up having a 50 to 60 minute conversation with random people about their tractors and why it's bothering them. And she's like, how did you have a conversation with someone about a tractor? I'm like, I asked them what he's talking about. It's really simple. Oh, that thing. What is that thing? Oh, that's what that does? What does that mean? Right? I just had a conversation. I have conversations with people who hunt, and I've never shot anything besides a paper target. Right? And even then, I'm pretty sure I missed. <laughs> like, I have conversations with hunters, and I've never hunted. I have conversations with people who uh, own firearms regularly and talk with them and to the point where sometimes they think I'm more experienced with firearms than I am, and they just, like, hand me a gun in a crowded room. And I'm like, oh, thanks. What do I do with this? And they're like, I'll take that back right now. Okay. I have learned. Don't do that. We extroverts also have gifts that can be used for the beneficial, benef- for the, for the, I forgot how that word works in that, con- in that tense. What is the word? Thank you. I'm just going to let Creed say it. Say it louder, Creed. Beneficiated. All right. Yeah. So, I don't know. <laughs> You're mean. Anywho. Yeah. <laughs> we are beneficial to what the work Christ is doing, too, in different ways. We are willing to build friendships, though sometimes those friendships will not be as deep or meaningful as other people's will be. Uh, And we have to try really hard to have deep and meaningful relationships and friendships. So we have a place, and introverts have a place, and everyone has a place in telling people about Jesus. But then this question also pops up, what, uh, what, what what do you tell them? What do you tell people whenever you want to tell them about Jesus? There's a couple things. The number one, the obvious one, this is, this is a dull one. You should probably know the gospel. If you don't, I've got a story for you. I would love to explain to you the gospel if you don't know what it is. We can have that conversation anytime, any moment, any place, and we'll talk about it a little bit at the very end of the sermon, which will be coming up here right quick as I look at my watch. You should know the gospel, and there are different ways that you can know it. There's the five-point method. If anyone has no idea what that is, it's basically, oh, you and Jesus are this, and then you and Jesus are this, and you just walk through five points. There's the Romans road, which uses like seven different verses from Romans to walk through the entire gospel. Uh, There's the great exchange, which is actually probably my favorite. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange, which was God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become a sin offering on our behalf so that we could gain what only he deserved, righteousness before God, right? That's the great exchange, and it's super easy. I like it. Though you may appreciate knowing how to explain the gospel in different ways. It's always worthwhile. Heck, if you want to know a super easy one, this is the gospel plan of salvation that comes with our kids' ministry stuff. Whenever we're explaining the gospel to kids through the gospel project, towards the end of that three-year run, this is what they should understand about the gospel. That God reigns created everything for his own glory, that we sinned and we sin, and that because of our sin, the world breaks and broke. God provided a way for us to step past that sin through Jesus. He provided a bridge back to him. Jesus offers us what we could not deserve, which is right standing before God. In his death and resurrection, he offers us what we could never earn, relationship with God. And we respond to what Jesus did. We believe, we accept. And we allow our lives to change because of who he is and what he's done. This is a very, very, very basic outline of the gospel. And there are other basic outlines of the gospel. Heck, you want to know something? On the back circle table back there, I put out four different types of gospel tracks. And let me real quick when I say that, if I hear that any of you put these on a table in lieu of a tip... I will rip it up in front of you and then be very angry with you. I have been a waiter before, and one of the things I had to do as a Christian waiter was make a joke of people who drop tracks and say I collect bad ones so that all the other waiters and waitresses would bring tracks to me 
and say, is this a bad one? And I could read through it and explain why the theology in it is good or bad to that person. So in someone giving them a bad tract, and some of them are very bad guys, in people giving bad tracts out, I got to have relational conversations with people who knew me and knew I wasn't a jerky Christian. Yeah. It was my one thing. I collect them. Anyway, yeah. So I have a booklet somewhere of all the bad tracks I received. My favorite, I'm just going to tell you this one real quick. I actually got this one at Youngstown. This is whenever I started collecting, when I was in Youngstown. Uh, it was slid under my door one day whenever I walked into my dorm. It was basically the graphic novel, right? Pretty long one, pretty substantial. I didn't know what it was at first. It was the story of Titanic. And it was the story of Titanic told from the point of view outside of Jack's. But it also seemed to be just a little bit off, and I couldn't figure out why until I read things like, and then Jack went down below the hold and was dancing and carousing like evil people will. I'm like, okay. And Jack was sinful in these ways and bad in these ways. And then it showed him the never let go scene at the very end. You go through like 27 pages of track, and you get to the very end, it's the never let go scene, right? Uh, and then he, he drops off and he goes down to the water and dies. And then he ends up in hell. And that's the tract that they put. Don't let what happened to Jack happen to you. I'm like, I'm going to stay off ocean liners. This is my first thing I'm taking from this. I will never take a boat again. That's what we call an ineffective tract because A, it was dumb. B, it was like 37 pages long. No one got to the end of that but me because I was just trying to figure out what's happening here. And C, it's not really the message. We don't preach, you suck Therefore, you deserve hell and you're going to hell forever. That's not the point of the gospel. As a matter of fact, the only times whenever Christ mentions Sheol or Hades or Gehenna is whenever he's talking to religious leaders who are trying to proclaim they know what they're talking about. Then he said, you're in danger of Gehenna, which is rejecting God to the point where you're willing to go and sacrifice your kids on an altar. That's what happened in Gehenna, by the way. It's the place where people of Israel stopped worshiping God and went and worshiped the god Moloch would sacrifice their kids on an altar. He's saying what the religious leaders were in danger of doing was walking so far away from God, they're willing to just sacrifice their own kids to a false god and to separate themselves from him, which is what the people of Israel did. Weird, right? No, our story is not a story of condemnation. It's a story of grace. Jesus is an act of grace. It's an act of God taking upon himself that which we can only try to overcome on our own, in which we will try and fail at overcoming on our own. Other things you can do is you can pray for opportunities to tell people about Jesus. Pray that you will be able to have relationships with people who don't know him. Pray that you'll be able to have the courage to be willing to speak about him whenever you want to. Pray for the passion that you uh, have flaming inside you to be such that you're going to be willing to talk about him at least as much as you talk about the Browns, right? And here's the biggest one, the biggest one of all. Know your story. Because do you know how rare it is for someone to be reasoned from the Bible into believing in Jesus? Do you know how rare that is? Let me just go ahead and, in case you've never actually thought about what this is like, you're telling someone who doesn't believe in God they should because this book from God tells them to. Right? And that book from God tells them to believe in God because it's, a, it's just a circular argument, right? Uh, you will rarely reason someone through Scripture into faith. Super rare. Now, I have seen people philosophically, philo philosophically, <laughs> I remember basic words, <laughs> I have seen people go through philosophic arguments to explain why a, 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 beginning, uh, a beginning cause has to exist, and that cause has to be something greater than an effect, right? And that everything else that's affected has to have an initial cause, blah, blah, blah. I've heard philo philosophically people have ways to discuss the fact that a God exists. But even then, that does not bring you to the God of the Bible exists because the Bible tells you so, Right? Rarely will people actually accept what the Bible says about God unless for some reason they already hold it to be authoritative. Like that Ethiopian eunuch did. He was a worshiper. He understood that the God of Israel exists. He wanted to learn about what the God of Israel's text taught. And so therefore, 
Philip was able to tell him using Scripture what it means, right? But super rare, guys. But you know what actually does matter generally to people who know and love you? What did Jesus do for you? What's your story? Oh, so you were, you were where in your life? And then God rescued you from what? You had this happen and he rescued you from what? You were broken and bruised and hurt. You were grieving and lost. You were without hope. And then he rescued you. And he offers that hope to other people. That's huge. I know the Bible pretty well. I'll say that. If you were standing next to someone who knew and loved you, and you explained to them what the gospel was through your story and what Christ did from you, did for you, you will be far more convincing than I ever could be sitting there and reading the Bible at them in the appropriate order. Like, they have no reason to listen to me. I don't matter. I don't care about them enough. To them, I just see them as a number, a person to check off, someone to say, oh yeah, I got another one, let me write your name in the Bible so I can have a listing of everyone that I saved. Which, by the way, don't ever say that. You don't save people. Uh, if they don't know that the person who's talking to them cares, they have no reason to listen to what that person says. Again, this is why Jake is effective at the Oracle. Because whenever he's there, he loves people, and he provides care to them. And he walks with them through deep and hurtful parts of their lives, and he's willing to share deep and hurtful parts of his, and he's willing to explain things that he's gone through, and he's willing to hear what they've gone through. And he's smart. That's a helpful one. I will be honest. Jake is very smart. So whenever someone walks up with, I have this philosophical issue with the concept of a singular created being, Jake can walk them through the philosophy of it. Or, I have issue with this scripture, Jake can walk them through the context of it and why it's possibly not as harmful as they think like he's smart and that's helpful and he has a rare gifting for that but it's his actual relationship with people to let all the rest of that stuff matter i have many of the same gifts as jake i don't affect people at the oracle the way he does because i don't have relationships with them i don't know him i don't know him but to bring all this back, straight to the beginning, straight to the beginning, Let me go ahead and rewind here. We talk about what we love, what we value, what we care for. I was speaking to a man named Mike recently, and Mike is a guy who has gone on many emissions trips, uh, both within and outside of the U.S., and one of the things that he told me about was one of the first mission trips he ever went on, and he was actually just a little bit down south, like Virginia area, and he was on a mission trip to help build some stuff outside of a school. And so sometimes this church would send people just to help build in areas that need help building, right? So whenever he was there, uh, their group needed some place to go worship on Sunday. So they opened a phone book and just ran their hand down the pages and picked one and went to it. And it was a small church. They probably had about 40 people usually in attendance. And this missions group was like 50 people strong. So doubled attendance for that church in the morning. That was hilarious. But whenever he was there, he heard something that intrigued him because he had never heard it taught in the mega churches he had gone to before. And that was this. Towards the end of the worship set, towards the end of the sermon, towards the end of the service, the pastor stood up and said to the congregation, uh, congregation, if you are now leaving here and you are feeling like you want to tell people about the music we played and how awesome it is, about the... Uh, the wonderful way in which we have people in our choir singing, the awesome message that the pastor gave and how you can come and listen to him because he's a great and compelling speaker. If these are the things that you're walking away from wanting to teach, you have not yet truly worshipped today because it's not about who we are. It's about who he is. If you are truly worshipping God, you're not going to want to go out and tell people about your church. You're not going to go out and tell people about Jesus. Right? That's what true worship leads to, proclaiming Christ. Has anyone here ever been to the point where you have truly worshipped God to the point where you couldn't help but go out and just talk about how awesome he is to someone? Have you been there before? 
I have like once in my life, <laughs> right? I teach people about him regularly, but to have that all fillingness that it felt like I just had to or I would burst, that's happened like one time in my life. And let me tell you, this was directly after, I'm going to tell you a little bit of my story. This was directly after I had literally just decided I'm going to go ahead and not be a Christian anymore, <laughs> right? I'm going to not be a Christian anymore because it's stupid. And I'm now a bigger guy. I've gotten stronger. I look more handsome and girls like me more. And why am I trying to be a good church boy? This is annoying, right? I've been a Christian for two years, a bad one for most of it. And then towards the end of that time, I realized that I could actually go and have fun if I would just let go of these things that were hanging me up. And one of the things that was hanging me up was Jesus, right? So I was actually sitting in a worship service, and there was a band playing, and I was ignoring it. And I didn't really care what they were playing about. But while I was sitting there, uh, I decided to leave. I was going to walk out of the church and walk away forever. And I said to myself, just in case. You've read a just in case moment? Just in case I should check this, just to make sure. And so I real quick prayed. Jesus, if you exist, you better do something right now because I'm going to walk away forever and you're never going to hear from me again. You know, put him to the test. Don't do that generally. I am very lucky he didn't just strike me dead or whatever, or just ignore me and let me go, right? Make my decision. For some reason, he chose to have grace on me instead. And during the worship song, not in the middle, not at the end, not between songs, he walked, this guy walked up on stage and stopped the worship song that was playing. And if you don't know, I did not grow up in a church where this happens. Sometimes this happens in churches. Uh, people are willing to uh, just allow someone to spontaneously go up and say something that Jesus is telling them. This didn't happen at my old church. Our old church was very orderly and old and put together so that everything was regimented in its place, Right? And this dude walks up, and actually the drums are playing. He's like, hold on, hold on a second. Stop it, stop it. Mind you, it's a church of about 200 people. I was in the back right corner. The guy stood up from the front left. Okay, so it wasn't someone who was watching me mouth my lips or something. He walked up on stage, stopped the worship song, and said, I just want you to know that Jesus told me someone here just said they're going to walk away from him. And he wants you to know not to. And I was like, well... That might have been for me, <laughs> right? And I was floored because at that moment, I got to see the love of God poured out in a way I had never seen. He had the grace and kindness and mercy to look on a kid who is young and punky and a jerk and who deserved nothing but his contempt and he showed me kindness and compassion and love. And he let me know I mattered to him. <laughs> Which is one of the things I hadn't actually really picked up on before. Just how much I actually mattered to him. And you may be wondering this too. Who here has ever, uh, let me ask you this. I'm just going to assume that you, like I, are a normal human. And you probably have parts in your past that are things that are points of fear for you, or pain, or shame, things that you just know that you have done wrong, that you hate. You hate it. And if you could, you would just cut those parts of your life out and get rid of them and throw them away. You would break the skull of the person you used to be, if you possibly could. They're the parts that make you feel little and small and like you don't matter, right? Everyone here has one of those, right? I'm not the only one. You guys are all like, no, what are you talking about, you? We're all cool. I don't know what's wrong with you, all right? No, we all have these points of shame, of brokenness, of hurt, of anger or guilt or rage that we can't get rid of. And Jesus loves you in the midst of that. That thing or those things that you're ashamed of, he loved you completely while they were ongoing. In the worst parts of my life, whenever I look back and hate myself, 
Jesus loves me. He doesn't hate me. And he offered himself up as a living sacrifice and then died. He offered up his own life. He gave his own life up for me at that point. Not when I was good enough to deserve it. Not whenever I had all my stuff together. He sees where we were and he smiles upon us and loves us and he offers himself and redeems us. I hate the man I used to be, but I'm not that man anymore because of him. This is what we offer to the world. God loves you so much. So as you go, remember how much you are loved. Remember what he has done for you. Remember what he is still doing for you. Because if you don't know this, his work of salvation is still actively ongoing in your life. Salvation is a constant process for Christians. He is continuously saving you and sanctifying you. He does it for you. And one day, whenever he returns, he will completely remake the world into his image, and it will be perfect, and he will have a place for you in it. Isn't that crazy? Because of who he is. So as we leave here today, worship your Lord. We're going to sing another song and worship of him. We're going to participate in communion together where we worship him through remembering what he's done. And then as we go, go forth and do what we're called to do as a church, which is show that love to the world. Make sense? Now let's pray. Lord Jesus, you love so much better than we can imagine. You've offered us so much more than we could ever earn or deserve. You have provided for us whenever we needed provision desperately and whenever we could not provide for ourselves, which is all the time. Lord God, you have overcome our brokenness, our pain, our shame. You have overcome sin and death and darkness. And Lord God, you are remaking the world in your image, and we love to see it happen. So Lord, as we worship you today, may you allow us to hear who you are, to know what you've done, May we remember how much you love, and Lord God, may we proclaim you because the world needs you as much as we do. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.